hope. Hope. I think I, I'm, I just want to apologize before I go any further because I did have a dig at Collingwood a couple of weeks ago using this word hope. Now, Collingwood, I believe, can quite possibly win, win, win the Premiership and the Grand Final next season. That's what we're hoping for. Now, the world uses this word hope in that regard. Like, we don't know if it's going to happen, but statistically, it, it, it looks good. But we don't know if it's going to happen. So we hope it does. And we also use the word hope in a negative sense too, like, I hope it doesn't happen, you know? I hope I don't have a car crash on the way home. Who wants to hope that tonight? Yes, me too. <laughs> Some of us just live around the corner and we're like, yes, I don't want to have a car crash. <laughs> yeah. We don't know if it's going to happen or not, but we hope that it doesn't. Now, this is not the biblical concept of hope. It's not like it might happen or it might not happen. Here's, here's what I found. Uh, this is the best definition I could find of a biblical concept of hope. What, whenever you see the word hope in the Bible in terms of like hope, hoping in God, hoping in the Lord, him bringing you hope, is this. It's a joyful anticipation of good. It's a joyful anticipation of good. Now, when I got you guys to turn to the person next to you and say, I have this hope, I have hope. It, God has poured out in us hope when we put our trust in Jesus. Now, that's an eternal thing. It's a, it's, it gets us to eternity. It's a hope that we have of eternity. Sorry, it's, it's not an eternal thing. Hope is not eternal. Hope gets us to that eternity, that point where, you know what, in the future, there's actually going to be no cancer. There's going to be no dementia. In the future, there's going to be no people dying of cancer. In the future, there's going to be no suicide. In the future, no one's going to be blind. In the future, everyone will be walking. Everyone will be using their lips. There'll be no deaf people, no mute people in the future. There'll be no death in the future. Does anyone feel the hope rising? Like, because that's, we, we're created in Christ and he's poured out his Holy Spirit in us, who is eternal and knows the future and knows what hope lies for the believer in Jesus, that no matter what we face here on earth, we have the, that hope of something good. We have that joyful anticipation of something good. And then something happens and you hit something in life, in the physical realm. And you're like, oh, that's right. We live in this, this two worlds. As Christians, we have this hope. We, we set, our, set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. You know, but in this world, storms come. Disappointment comes. Divorce comes. Cancer comes. Breakups come. Sadness comes. Death comes. We can't stop those things from happening. I mean, you can, you can if it's you doing it, <laughs> but those things will come. You know, Jesus said himself, in this world, you will have trouble. Where? In this world. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And that's, that's the hope we have. Now, I want you to open up your Bibles to, to Hebrews chapter 6. And I don't know if we're just, I might preach on hope tonight and next week and the week after. I don't know. It's a very good subject. I love it. 
hope, the the joyful anticipation of good. Um, Hebrews chapter 6. If you've got it, can you just grunt or make a noise or something? Everyone's open to it already. Mm. Good, 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 good. Um, by the way, hope, hoping in a situation does not, you know, like it, if you have, I just want to say up front, if, if anyone here has like a situation in their life where hope has gone out the window or, you know, you have a diagnosis from a doctor that says you have something, then hope doesn't deny the facts. It doesn't deny what the facts are, all right? It just denies what the truth is. Hope, hope says there's someone greater. There's something greater. Hebrews chapter 6. And um, <sighs> I love this. In verse thir- uh, 13, God is making a promise. Okay? He promises to bring hope. And the writer to the Hebrews, can I just say, is writing to people who are Christians but come from a Jewish background. Okay, so they come from a background of worshipping God in a different system to what they're now born into in Christ. All right, same God, but different way to relate with him. Different covenant. All right, grace. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since, he, uh, since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name. And he said, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number, your seed beyond number. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God credited his account. God just went, okay, you believe me. I will credit your account. I will top it up with righteousness. You are righteous in my sight because you believe. And we have that same promise in Christ, believing that we might have life in his name. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever what? Believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. Awesome. There's no gray hairs in the future. Sorry, I'll just keep throwing those things in. (laughs) Everlasting life. He promised Abraham and he took an oath. And so what did Abraham do? He waited patiently and he received what God had promised. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves, don't they? You ever been to court? Anyone been to court this week? <laughs> no sinners. No, that's all right. But I don't know if they do it anymore, but they used to do it where you'd go in and you would put your hand on a Bible. It was a Gideon's Bible from my experience. And you would, you would swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. I don't know if they do that anymore. But the swearing part was, was swearing upon something, an authority greater than yourself. And in the, ju- in, the, in the judicial system, it's God. <laughs> well, you know, it should be God. There's no one greater than God. So when God wants to make a promise, 
when he wants to remind his people about the promise he made, where does he go? What does he put his hand on? Yeah, himself. He puts his hand on himself. And he says, you guys need to understand this. I am actually going to bless you and I will multiply your descendants. In other words, I will have, I will give you a relationship with me based on faith. I will give you a descendants. I will give you, this is God saying this to us, to everyone. I will give you a relationship with me and I will bless you based entirely on faith. And God not only just promises that, it's such a such an awesome promise that God wants everyone to hear. He actually makes an he takes an oath. He backs it up with an oath. Let's pick on Peter the disciple. When Jesus was was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, Peter was caught out by a couple of people in a courtyard and they would say, "Oh, weren't you one of Jesus's disciples?" and Peter would he would say, "No." No, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. And it was two times he said, no, I'm one of his disciples. And then the third time, we're told that Peter took an oath and said, I am not this man's disciple. That's, that's a sure sign that he is backing up what he just promised two times before. And it gets to the point where Jesus has to reinstate Peter into that relationship, into that fellowship, not only with himself, but with the other disciples by telling him he loves him three times. That's a, that's a side issue. But here, the point is that God, through the writer to the Hebrews, is trying to remind these Hebraic Christians how to have a relationship with him. Because all the other Jewish people around them were probably trying to say, that's not truth. That's not how you have a relationship with God. You can't just believe and God will give it to you. You have to go to the temple. You have to do this, you have to say this, and you have to pay this. And these Jewish Christians would have been tempted to fall back into that way of life, similar to the Israelites where God delivered them out of Egypt with Moses and they all started grumbling in the wilderness saying, why are we, why are we dying out here? We could, have, we could have lived in luxury in Egypt and died there. It just seems such, such a waste of, um, yeah, such a waste. That, um, that God would just give it, just if we believe. But that's what God is saying to these people and to, and to you tonight. That his promise is backed up by his oath. God bound himself. So, in verse 18, God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are, un are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. If God has said it, and he's made an oath about it, that's it, right? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And it's not that God won't lie, it's that God can't lie. He can't lie. God can't lie. You want to know something God can't do? Lie. He can't. He cannot lie. You know that, right? I don't have to say it five times. There's no balding in the future. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. There's something we need to do with this hope. What is it? 
What is it? Hold it. Yeah. Take hold of it. Two hands, actually. This is a Greek. Grip it with two hands. What's your other hand holding on to? <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's no other hand. There's three, two hands. That's it. Hold nothing but this hope. This hope, right? We hold to the hope that lies before us. Now, verse 19 is really what I want to preach on tonight. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. This hope is an anchor for the soul. This hope is an anchor for the soul. Hope. It's not this faith is an anchor for our souls or this saviour is an anchor for our souls. It says this hope is the anchor for our souls. I remember when I was a kid, um, pretty much between the ages of 10 and 16, my uncle David had this big old diesel boat. Similar to if you were to go down to um, Turidan and see some of the um, boats you know, moored there with you know rusty looking things that flat out do like maybe one and a half knot. And we would go out on this boat, my cousin Michael and I, and my brother Andrew as well, we'd go out on this boat overnight, maybe for two nights, and we'd go fishing with Uncle David. And my dad would come sometimes. And I remember those times, it was really fun. We all smelled of fish, but we had a great time. We caught all kinds of things, not just fish, but we threw them back. <laughs> we kept the fish. But I remember when I went out with, any time that I went out with my cousin Michael, and it was just me and him and Uncle David, it was my job to be at the front of the boat and I would, because I was bigger than Michael, I would be able to pick up the anchor and throw it over whenever Uncle David said, throw out the anchor. All right? Now, this anchor was metal. I don't know what it was, iron or something. It was heavy. And not just that, but it was the chain as well. It wasn't just like a rope. It was a chain. But I remember, like, if we ever went somewhere and we wanted to, you know, harbor in a bay somewhere i would be the one who would stand there and i'll be i'll be waiting ready for uncle david to say throw out the anchor and he'd say it with a little bit of a slur because he might have had a few beers and i would then throw it out and then i would not see it for a long time it would disappear under the water it would disappear under the green water and i wouldn't see it at all and and then the journey of the anchor descended into somewhere I never knew where it was, but it stuck to something. And whenever we put the anchor down, the boat still rocked. Like if there was a storm coming through, we'd still sway. There'd still be winds. The rain would still fall on the boat. You know, we'd still run out of petrol, uh, diesel. There'd still be problems, but we wouldn't move very far from where we put the anchor down. Like there'd still be that rocking and seasickness and vomiting over the edge even. Yeah, sorry. But there would, there would be. But the anchor kept us within a certain radius of where it was fixed. You know, like depending on where the wind was, if the wind changed, the boat would start facing south instead of north. But we'd still be fixed to the anchor. Does that make sense? And then when it was time to leave, I'd pull up the anchor. Oh, my goodness. That was hard work. And the Bible says, this hope is like an anchor, or it is, sorry, this hope is an anchor. It's an anchor for your soul. It's an anchor for your soul. All of you guys, even me, we all have souls. 
Did you know that you're created by God to have a soul? It's beautiful. There's, there's lots of discussion out there in Christian circles on how the body and the person, what the entire person is. But as I read it, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, if you can, in your Bibles. And I love hearing flicking pages, but I'm, I know everyone's got these uh, screens now, so it's difficult to know. I know there's some flicking pages. Thank you for flicking pages loudly tonight as well. So I know that you're, you're turning, you're listening, and we're going somewhere. Um, Genesis chapter 1 is a really, really well-formed um, account of creation, right? God created everything in six days, and he rested on the seventh, right? And Genesis 1 puts it in dot point form so that the Jewish believer can just know it off by heart. And then chapter 2 comes around, and it puts it into more of a, um, a story-like way of writing it, Okay. A little bit more detail, but all the same stuff there. Okay, chapter two comes around, and and God, we see in verse uh, four, uh, sorry five, or half, halfway through four, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Just stop there. Oh, I love that. So cool. He formed the man from the dust of the ground. God has not created the, the animals like this. He formed the man from the dust of the ground. Physical. He got something that was already there. And then he formed it into something new. God's a creative God, isn't he? All of you, <laughs> you're all dust. I'm dust. We're butt dust in some old translations. All of us are butt dust. And then it says in verse 7, he, uh, from the dust of the ground, he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. Ruach, the breath of life, the spirit. All right, he breathed the spirit into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person, a living soul. The Hebrew word in there is, I don't know if someone got a soul in their Bible translation tonight. I've got the New Living Translation. It's very just plain, uh, but it living, uh, became a living person, became a living soul. Okay, so we've got these three, three bits, body, spirit, and soul. Um, it's wonderful because, you know, when God said, let us make man in our image, it's the let us, let us, right? Let us make man in our image, and yet he only just made one. So there's, there's an image there, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the body, the spirit, and the soul. Soul sometimes can be the mind. You know, what is your mind? Is your mind your brain? It's more than that. It's who you are. You know, sometimes in life, actually all the times in life, when you face trials, what the devil is trying to do is attack your soul. The devil doesn't care about your car. The devil doesn't really care. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want your job. You know, some people say the devil is trying to take my job away from me or he's trying to take my car away from me or he's trying to take my relationship. He's trying to ruin my whatever. The devil doesn't need that. He doesn't want that. He wants your soul. 
and anything to get you to the point where you relinquish your soul is what he's going to do. All right, he'll cause anything to happen to attack your soul. Does that make sense? Are you guys alive? So when, when the Bible says that this hope is an anchor for the soul, it means that it doesn't matter what kind of winds or storm come your way. If, if, you, have, if you have this hope, your soul won't stray too far from the pivot point of where the anchor is. Where's the anchor? Look at your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 6. We're told, see, most Christians get to this point and they go, hope is the anchor for my soul. Full stop, shut the Bible, walk away. But where is the anchor? Where is it? Someone want to call it out? It's in the sanctuary behind the curtain where Christ Jesus has gone. Just like when you throw an anchor off of a boat, you don't see where it goes, but it sticks onto something solid that is immovable that will keep you firm in the billows of life. Christ Jesus is where we are anchored behind the curtain in the sanctuary. We looked at the sanctuary during COVID church online if you were watching, looked at the tabernacle and the idea of the tabernacle, I won't go into great detail, but the, the priests would serve inside the holy place, okay, and outside in the places where there'd be sacrifices and blood and awesome stuff like that. Then they would come into the holy of, sorry, the holy place, wash their hands, go into the holy place. And inside the holy place, there's a menorah to the left, which is like a massive candelabra, right, with, with candles. Okay, and on the right hand side, there's a table with the bread of the presence, which is replaced a lot. And then further down, there's this little tiny table with incense burning, right? Frankincense and cool stuff smelling, right? And the idea is that the light's shining, God's guiding your way. The bread's there, He's always providing for us. And the incense there is that we are constantly in connection with Him in prayer, right? And then there's this curtain and behind the curtain is the Holy of Holies and in there is a box and the box is the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Presence. And inside this box is, are three things. There, there's a golden jar with manna in it. There's, a, there's Aaron's staff, there's a walking staff that had budded and had grown little almonds. And there's also the Ten Commandments in stone tablets in this box. And the box represents, oh, you're right. Is it important? <laughs> Speaking of knowing, should, should, should have known better. This box isn't just like something that, you know, sometimes as Christians we kind of go, Oh, the tabernacle, and, the, and that's all old. We'll push it to the side. It doesn't mean anything today. 
Sometimes we can get into that way, but all of those things are for us to learn something new. Now, that box represented the presence of God with his people, right? And on top of that box were these two little angels carved out of gold, and they pointed their wings to each other, and in between those two wings was the presence, apparently, that God rested. I don't know if you fit God in a box, but you certainly can't fit him on top of a box. But this was the place where God's presence would rest, all right? And it was on top of the mercy seat, okay? That's the, the name of the lid. And inside the box, there's manna, a buttered staff, and the Ten Commandments. Manna means that God provides. The buttered staff means that God brings life. He's the sustainer and he's the healer. The staff was still alive, still alive inside the box. It wasn't plugged into anything. It's amazing. Supernatural life. And the, and the law means that God's in charge. Now we know that God's given a new law, a new covenant, a new promise through Christ. We don't have to do the old covenant stuff in order to have a relationship with God. We're friends with God because of Jesus, because of our faith in him. And that's beautiful. But those things still remain. We are provided for. We have life, supernatural life. He's our sustainer. He's our provider. And he's still in charge. And he still gives us the law, still gives us um, leadership in that. He's written his law in our hearts. And this is where... The anchor is. The anchor is in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, where Jesus has already gone for us. That's where the anchor is. And it, and it leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'm preaching on hope next week because this is too much right now, but we'll stop it there for tonight. But isn't that beautiful that, that this anchor for your soul is hope? And it's, it's actually a, a really solid thing that the Christian can hold on to. The world will say hope is a different thing that you're not sure of. But the Bible says the hope is a very sure thing. Hope is a very sure thing because it's anchored on a surer thing. What Jesus Christ has done for us. All right, there's nothing in this world that can ever separate us from his love. There's nothing in this world that can that can tear us away from a relationship with him unless we don't have our hope anchored in the right place. So I want you to put on your 12-year-old self and get out the front of your Uncle David's boat tonight and have a look where are you going to throw that anchor? Where where is your hope? tonight? Is your hope in a God who can do immeasurably more than you could ever dream or ask or imagine? Or is your hope in something that's not going to last forever? Is your hope in a person? Hopefully it's in Jesus, not something else, not someone else. We have a hope. It's an anchor for the soul. It's an anchor for the soul. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you have already provided the way for us. You've already, you've already made the way. We thank you, Lord, that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we can just meet here together tonight and just worship you because of that. We're so thankful, Lord, for making a way for us where there wasn't a way that we could make our own. Thank you, Jesus, for being the way maker. Lord, thank you so much for taking upon your shoulders our sin and, and, and our our fallings, our, our failures, Lord, 
Thank you for taking them upon your shoulders and crucifying them on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for dealing with our sin and our past, our regrets and our guilt. And thank you for rising to new life. And thank you for going into the presence of God as the first human being, leading the way for the rest of us as we put our trust in you, as we have our faith in you, and as we throw our anchor of hope upon you. You are our only hope. And we look forward to what you're going to do in our lives, Lord. Um, from this day on, no matter what storms come our way, Lord, we thank you that you are you're solid and firm and you're trustworthy. But Lord, I want to pray, Lord, for people tonight, if, if their anchor is not in you, that you'd just give them a real sense of who you are this week, that you'd show yourself trustworthy, Lord Jesus, that they might have eyes to see and ears to hear, that you are a God of hope and you bring hope to our hearts too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.